I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Bent Flubier to our show. Bent is a professor and chair of major program management at the IT University of Copenhagen and also at Oxford University. Bent is the most cited scholar in project and program management and the author of 10 books and more than 250 papers, as well as being an advisor to governments and businesses around the world on the topic. He recently published a very interesting and important book with a co-author, Dan Gardner, called How to Get Big Things Done, and he is here to discuss that with me today. In the book, Bent examines the success and failure of major projects, analyzes data spanning decades, and it's full of fascinating case studies. He looks at common errors in big projects, including an exploration of the psychology and the politics of project management. And he also proposes a number of solutions that I think apply to any business. So that's what we'll be discussing today. Thank you for joining me and congratulations on the book, Bent. Thank you very much, Martin. It's a pleasure to be here. So Bent, according to your research, a really astonishing 0.5% of major projects come in on budget, on schedule, and realizing the desired benefits. Can you tell us a bit about the research that led to this stunningly low number? Yes, we call it the iron law of project management. And actually, at first, when we saw this number, we thought, hmm, can we trust this, you know? And we collected data for some more projects to see whether the number still held up, and it did, you know? So it's actually, it's been very stable, you know, this number, 0.5% meeting all three criteria. Now we also have other colleagues who have started to collect data like we do and and their findings confirm it. So this is a firm finding and it applies with a very high level of statistical significance that actually projects do not perform well. And your research focuses on mega projects. Can you tell us what you mean by a mega project? Does it have a certain size criterion associated with it? Yeah, there, there is no generally agreed upon definition of mega projects, but just, you know, a rough and ready definition is projects costing more than a billion dollars. You know, that's, that's your mega project and affecting very large amounts of people and usually taking a long time, even though that's something that is changing. Some mega projects today are actually delivered quite quickly because of things we'll get to talk about later. Does this number vary by project type? I imagine there are bigger projects, smaller projects, technology-intensive projects, technology-non-intensive projects, and so on, corporate, public sector. Is it pretty constant across project types, or is there a pattern? It varies across project types. So some, some projects are worse than others, but all projects have an element of this iron law. So it's not like we've found a type of project that doesn't have cost overruns at all and doesn't have delays at all and always deliver the benefits. That just doesn't happen when we measure at the project type level, but nuclear power and the Olympics and IT projects perform much worse than, say, server farms or solar farms or wind farms, basically anything that is modularized and easy to deliver. So BCG looked at corporate transformation projects. That's a project where a corporation is under performance pressure and it takes widespread organizational effort to restore performance. And And we found that only 25% of projects restore performance to median sector level performance. So it's a different success criterion. But does that number surprise you at all? No. And we see the same for mergers and acquisitions. So I actually think that making the kind of change that you are talking about and making the kind of change that a merger and acquisition is, is they are also big projects, typically. And they actually have the same performance problems. 
All right, so tell us about the reasons for failure then. Are there patterns of, of failure that are very common across these projects? Yes, there are, and they're very well studied. Not so much in project management, but in management in general and in organizational studies in psychology and, and social psychology. Lots of studies documenting that there are two things that work here, which we emphasize in the book. One is psychology and the other is power or politics, you know, but not politics in, in the sense of party politics, obviously, but in the sense of organizational politics, like jockeying for position, trying to get your projects funded and so on. So if we take psychology first, behavioral economics have documented without reasonable doubt, you know, that optimism bias, overconfidence, availability bias, and so on influence us when we make decisions. And of course, since this is something that our brains are hardwired with, this will apply to anything we do, including project management and project delivery. And that's exactly what we find, that we find that budgets are optimistic. You know, if you're optimistic about a budget, it'll be low, right? And you get a cost overrun. Well, that's exactly what we see in the data. So the findings from behavioral economics, if we take the behavioral biases like one by one, they also apply in project delivery. On the political side, on the power side, we find that people deliberately misrepresent projects. So on the psychological side, misrepresentation is non-deliberate. So it's unconscious. It's not something people do deliberate. So if you're an optimist, it's not deliberate. Or rather, we could say if you are a deliberate optimist, then you're not a real optimist. Optimism is innocent, meaning that you are not reflected about it. On the power side, it's very reflected. It's actually people trying to game the system. So in the US, they have this expression that to lowball projects, so you lowball the project. The budget of the project, it means that you deliberately produce a low budget to make the project look cheap on paper. Yes, and there, there is an economic utility there. I mean, if, if to sell a project, you need to represent it in a certain way, that has a certain value. It also has a certain cost, of course, in terms of failing to come in on budget and on time. Have you, have you looked at that trade-off? We've looked at that. And the problem is that many of the people who are selling the project are not the ones delivering it. You know, So you'll, you'll have people within an organization they will be very keen on selling a project and they will make it look good on paper. And, and like we just talked about, you make it look good by underestimating the budget, but also underestimating the schedule and overestimating the benefits. Any, any idiot can do that. You know, that's, that's the oldest trick in the book and, and anybody can do it. The problem, of course, arises when you start delivery, because if you've done this, then as sure as the law of gravity applies on this planet, you will have cost overrun if you deliberately underestimated the cost. And the same with schedule. You'll have schedule overrun if you deliberately underestimated the schedule. And that's, again, what we see. So these two different root causes, we call them, psychology as a root cause and power as a root cause, they work in the same direction. And they give you a double whammy of cost overruns and benefit underruns. So you clearly believe from the title of the book and your research that this problem of the low success rate is tractable. If I wanted to be devil's advocate, I could say the existence of successful projects doesn't directly prove that because we might be seeing some pattern of emergence or idiosyncratic project-specific factors. How would you defend the idea that we can actually change and, and increase this, this very low number? So first, I would say that this is a result that, you know, like I said, it, it applies with a very high level of statistical significance. So I don't think we can doubt the results. But like you say, the question is, what are the generative mechanisms that actually produce that result? And, and it could be an emerging phenomenon, like you say. So 
the way we we went out and tested for this, and this is something we've been working on for many years, and, and it's actually been difficult because it's difficult to find successful projects, as you can imagine, if there's only 1.5%, and it's not enough to find one successful project because that could just be randomness, right? So here's a team and an organization that were lucky, and this is how they produce their successful projects. So we needed to find organizations and individuals that had a whole string of successful projects where probability calculation would rule out, you know, at a very high level of statistical significance that this was something that they were lucky about, you know, getting this whole string of projects. And an example of where we found that is Pixar movies. Then we write a whole chapter about how Pixar make their movies. Another example is Frank Gehry, the, maybe the most famous architect on the planet right now. His buildings and his tendency to come in on, on budget and on schedule and so on. So we've, we basically found organizations that are able to do this over and over, which rules out an, an emergent phenomenon. It's not something statistical that's going on here. There's actually a clear pattern. Lucky exponentially to get the result, I see. Okay, so let's come on to solutions, because of course the uh, solution isn't necessarily the, the inverse of the problem. So you've got a lot of solutions. Let's, let's look at a couple of them. You talk about thinking slow and acting fast. Tell us about that one. Yeah, so obviously thinking slow is a nod to Daniel Kahneman, the famous behavioral psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in economics. And he's arguing that in order to get things right, when it's important decisions, we need to think slow. We have a tendency as human, this is another one of our cognitive biases, to think fast. We really like to go with the first thought that we get and then just run with it. And in management, <laughs> that's a huge problem. You have all these people, including people in the C-suite, you know, they act very spontaneously. Actually, the higher up you are in the organization, the more power you have, the more you are subject to this bias. Like, let's just get on with it. Let's get the shovels in the ground, metaphorically speaking. That's a really bad idea. You need to slow down and think about what it is you're doing. So that's the first part of a successful project. And the beautiful part of it is there's the second part that Kahneman doesn't talk about is the acting. If you really thought things through, we see with Pixar and Gary and others, then you can really move fast. And that's actually key to success, that you expose yourself to less risk the faster you can do something, the smaller a time window you have. And time is the killer in projects. The longer a project is, the more risk it is exposed to, including black swan risks. This is, again, something we have documented very carefully statistically. And what you want is to shorten the delivery period in order to reduce the level of risk that you are exposed to. And that's what you get with think slow, act fast. We call it the rhythm of a successful project. I guess that's related to another solution you propose, which is thinking from right to left. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, so that's about starting in the right place. So thinking slow, acting fast, that's about timing, you know, how much time should be spent on this. And you need not to spend a lot of time, but enough time that you actually have thought things through. Now, where do you start then? We say you start on the right. First, you need to find out what is it that you're delivering. And you need to have a very clear picture of that. Frank Gehry actually spent a lot of time, you know, all the many times that I've interviewed him, talking about he always starts with a why. Just one word he emphasizes, why. Why are you doing this project is the first thing he asks clients. And he keeps drilling down on this until... He really understands what it is the client wants to do, why they want to do it, and they have a common understanding of it so that you don't have misunderstandings about what it is you want to do. That's the right of the usual process chart for project management. So you start with the results, and then you think backwards. Then you think about all the different steps, 
all the different things that you need to do in order to arrive on the right. You go all the way to the, the leftmost part of the diagram, and that's where you start in the present. You know, what do you need to do today in order to arrive at the thing far out on the right? That's the way to think about organizing the work in time. And we talked to one project manager, Andrew Wolstenholm, who was the guy in charge of building Terminal 5 and other big mega projects in the UK. And he explained that he always, when he's on a project, he always has his eyes on what is out there on the right, no matter what he's doing, because it ensures that he's always doing the right thing, namely something that effectively contributes to arriving at the end product on the right. Then you talk about something I, I think is quite important, which is reference class forecasting. Tell us about that one. Yeah, that's, that's a really neat method for forecasting that has been proved to be more accurate than any other forecasting method. And you don't have to believe me on this. There's a whole bunch of independent studies proving that now. And this is a forecasting method that takes into account the famous unknown unknowns, which many people in forecasting think is not possible. If they're unknown unknowns, how can you take them into account? Well, with the help of behavioral economics, we found that there's a way to do this by looking at historical projects. So basically what you do in reference class forecasting is you establish a reference class of past similar projects to the one that you are planning. And then you simply take the data from that. You say, what was the cost overrun, if that's what you're interested in, cost, like what was the cost overrun or schedule, if that, whatever variable, it doesn't matter. It can be any variable. You look at the actual performance. So you get the actual numbers for that class of project. And then you decide for your project, do you think that you are better than the reference class or worse than the reference class? If you think you are, you are the same as the reference class on average, then you just use the numbers straight out of the reference class. If you think you're better, then you might adjust, you know, for instance, cost over on down somewhat. But actually, we've done this with dozens and dozens of clients, and most clients don't claim they are better than the reference class. They say they're about the same, or if anything, they might be less experienced or something, you know, for a specific project, and, and you need to adjust the numbers up instead of down. So it's an empirically-based forecasting method. You don't try to understand all the details of your project from the inside out. Instead, you understand the product from the outside in, and the outside is the reference class. And like I said, it's been proved that it produces much more reliable numbers than conventional forecasting. And it's cheap, by the way. I should mention that one other advantage is it's actually, it's really cheap compared with conventional methods once you have the data, and we have the data. Yeah, this was the method we used to look at thousands of corporate transformation projects. So we call it, you know, defaulting to, to class averages unless there is a, a specific special reason why you think you're different. We found it very powerful on hard factors. The, the challenge is that it's, it's hard using external data or third-party data to, to get at soft factors because, I mean, especially you're making a film, I mean, the timeline, the budget, these are sort of hard factors, but, you know, the creative and the personality mix of the team. Have you given any thought to soft factors in, in program success? So not by using reference class forecast. Of course, we've given thought to it, but not by using reference class forecasting. That, that is more about sort of the harder metrics of the project, the way we have used it. I don't have any doubt because it's such a general method that by some imagination, you could start using it on soft factors too, but we just haven't done that. Then modularity, that's something I talk a lot about. The modular project has higher chances of success. Can you tell us how modularity works and whether that's a very widely applicable technique? Yeah. So a module is a basic building block, you know, like a Lego, which is why I often use the metaphor of Legos when I talk about modularity, because Lego is something everybody knows. 
And it's basically being able to build your project by basic building blocks. So you first need to figure out what are my basic building blocks in this project. And actually, if you don't have any basic building blocks, I would say you have a problem because then you're doing something that you need to do in a bespoke fashion, you know, designing it and, and building it as a one-off thing. And our data very clearly show that doing that is not a good idea in terms of performance, that if you have to do that, you won't perform well. Whereas the more you can work on the basis of basic building blocks, the more successful, the better performance you will have. And I should emphasize, this is not an either or. People often think, you know, either you have modules or you don't. Like if you think about Lego, that is that is very black and white. Either you have a Lego or you don't have a Lego. And if you don't have a Lego, then you're in trouble. But you can actually do this by degrees. So we give examples in the book, for instance, the Madrid Metro that took this kind of thinking and said, look, how do we deliver a metro as modularized as possible? So it doesn't mean that every single detail on the metro is modularized, but it does mean that, for instance, you know, they decided to do all the station in the same manner. So a lot of standardizations, which become their building blocks, and they figured out what nobody had done before the optimal length of a tunnel boring machine to bore on a, an underground metro system. And then they said, this is our Lego for boring. And then they just got as many tunnel boring machines that they needed in order to deliver whatever it was that they had to deliver. So this is a way to use the, the thinking in order to systematize and, and standardize your product. And the metro in, in Madrid was delivered at half the cost of your average metro, at twice the speed of your average metro. So it really works. You do mainly with projects and, and, and programs, things that can have a plan. You know, one of the problems with corporate transformation is that it is episodic. So, so corporations, you know, have to transform sometimes or reorganize, and they tend to do it every three or five years. And um, there is an alternative, which is not waiting for one big adjustment, but to continuously change. So I'm wondering how much of your thinking is applicable to more of a sort of continuous change paradigm as opposed to episodic change. So when we talk about projects in the book, we think more about the episodic change because per definition, projects are episodic. That's, that's actually part of their definition. You know, they have a starting date and they have an end date. So that's the episode, right? However, I would say that the explanations and the concepts, the theories, and even the methodologies that we develop, you know, are such general roots. Like we talked about the psychology and the power before. Those are completely fundamental aspects of human behavior. So what I'm arguing here is that even though what we argue in the book is episodic, somebody could read that book and take a lot of lessons from the causes of why projects go well or not so well, and then apply that to a continuous change. Talking to my, my publishers, they tell me that self-help is one of the biggest book categories in, in business. And I guess we all have projects relating to the self. You know, I want to learn... Arabic, I want to lose a few pounds weight. This is, of course, beyond the scope of your book, but I'm wondering whether any of your approaches and, and thinking you think are applicable to projects on the self. It's funny that you mentioned this because somebody actually, a few days after the book was published, sent me a photo from a bookstore in Boston in the US, and the book was placed in the self-help section. And I was shocked, you know, I've never thought about it myself as somebody who's writing books that are placed in the self-help section of a bookstore, but this was the case actually in this big bookstore in Boston. So obviously somebody thought that this is book is, is relevant to self-help. And I can see why we do make a, a point of not just talking about mega projects. We talk about very small projects, you know, like a kitchen renovation and how to organize your life, you know, and how to write a book, stuff like that. And 
I guess that can be considered self-help, you know. So I do see that the book has lots of information that can be used for, for those kinds of issues. And like I said, we really aimed at this. We wanted this to be something that wasn't just relevant to huge organizations or individuals in huge organizations or on huge projects. We wanted this to talk to people in their daily lives. I guess you could say that while your book is not about self-help, in a sense it requires self-help because if we're presumably to overcome those tendencies to, to exaggerate and to politic, I mean, in a sense, that's a, that's a challenge of the, of the self, of individual behavior. That is true, but that's not enough. You know, We need the self-help for sure. Without that, we are not going to have successful results, but we also need organizations to think in terms of the right incentive structures, You know, to reward people for the right type of behavior and to punish them for the wrong type of behavior. And that needs to go hand in hand, so like more of a governance structure together with the self-help that works more on the individual level. Those are the two things that need to work together in order to succeed with these things. So I guess we, we have to talk about the biggest project of mankind, which is to make progress on climate change, a very big problem, maybe the biggest project. And, you know, I think we, we understand quite a lot about the problem. I think it's not very controversial to say we've made extremely limited progress in inflecting the curve of climate change. If you, if you look at climate change amelioration as, as a project, what do you observe about the reasons why we're not making more progress and maybe some of the things we could do to, to make more progress? Well, I actually wouldn't agree that we haven't made a lot of progress. I do agree that we haven't made a lot of progress in kinking the curve yet, you know, getting the curve to move in the right direction. But there's enormous uh, progress in, you know, developing the technologies that we need to do that and we will do it. After having studied this in detail, I have no doubt that we can and will do this. So what is the reason we haven't done it yet? Well, that's because we, we insist on our old behavior at the same time as all this new technology and new behavior is suggested. So uh, you can see after the pandemic, people couldn't get away on airplanes soon enough, you know, fly around, drive around. And OK, the level of activity is not quite up to what it was before the pandemic, but it's close, you know. So we, we like to go back to our old behaviors quickly. So that's that's the reason why. And also population is still increasing many places. People are getting more wealthy, which is probably the most important thing. The more well off people are, the more money they have to spend on things that today produces carbon emissions. But that's not going to be the case in the, in the future. In the future, you'll be able to do these things without producing carbon emissions. You know, like my friends in Norway, they don't turn off the light when they go out. They just leave the light on in their homes because they don't care, you know, because the, the electricity is from hydro. 98% of electricity in Norway is from hydropower. And it's dirt cheap, especially at nights, because that's when all the businesses are off. And so the price of electricity falls at nights. And it's so low that nobody even want to bother about remembering to turn off the light. That's an image of the future. Electricity is going to be so cheap and so easily accessible that we are not going to care much about how much of it we, we use. And let's talk about another, another big theme du jour, which is technology, uh, which is, I guess, all on our minds because of the recent progress in AI. I imagine that you see technology as both part of the problem of project management. I mean, IT projects very often fail to, to come in on budget and on time and so on, but, but perhaps part of the solution too. What do you have to say about the intersection of technology with your theme of managing projects for success? I mean, that's key. There's no way around that, and there's no way around IT and projects. That's actually one of the major trends in projects, in addition to climate that we just talked about, and which is the, the topic of the last chapter of the book. We also talk about IT throughout the book. 
and the way projects are becoming more and more IT projects. So any project today is more or less an IT project, sometimes less, sometimes more. I had a, a tunnel bore crying on my shoulder saying, Bent, you know, I took 20 years to learn how to bore a tunnel on budget and on time. And now that I learned it, I'm back to square one because now I have to put so much IT in my in my tunnels that they are out of control again because we can't control the IT even if we can control the tunnel. And that's actually, that's an example that has symbolic value because that's the way things are developing. And that's the problem with IT is that IT projects are the most fat-tailed, which means that they have the biggest risks of any project type of exploding in your face. And you're building more and more of this project type into any other project type. That doesn't sound like a good idea, does it? I mean, it means that you are actually building ticking time bombs into your project. But that's what's happening. And that's what we need to deal with. And we are working very hard on that and, and talk a bit about the fat tales in the book. So is there a specific success factor or practice which mitigates some of that, that technology risk inside any other project nowadays? I think that we actually back to the same basics, modularity. So we need to understand how do we do IT projects in a more modular fashion. Modularity can be both physical and it can be in time, right? So we have agile in IT. That's a way of trying to use modular where, where you make the time unit the module. And so you do a little module and then you see what, what you achieved. You try to learn from that and then you do the next. That's a way to do modularity. We need to think more like that. I'm not saying that Agile will solve any problems because we've studied that and we can see that it doesn't. The problems of the big IT projects still persist even though you use Agile. So we also need to think in terms of how can we develop software in a more modular fashion? And actually, there's a lot of thinking on this. And as far as I can judge, it's actually the software that can be delivered in the most standardized and modularized fashion that is delivered with the best performance. Okay, so let's come back to that famous uh, impatient mindset of senior managers that you talked about. So I imagine that most of the executives listening to this podcast will identify with these challenges of project management. And I imagine they'll be thinking, well, what can I do on Monday morning? So let's suppose that a CEO is taking heed of your book and wants to systematically increase the success rate of the projects in their organization. Where would they begin in a program, if you like a meta project or project to institutionalize your recommendations? Where would you start? So I would start with having the CEOs and everybody in the C-suite realize that they are biased and they are probably more biased than anybody else in their organization, at least on average. You know, that's what all the research shows. And some of those biases are there for a reason. And it's good, you know, to have a can-do attitude, have optimism. That's obviously good for getting things done. But hey, you can get too much of a good thing. And that's what, that's what people at the top level need to be aware of. Do I have too much of a good thing here? So how do I rein in this so I make sure that I get the positives of this and not the negatives? That's the first thing. The second thing is that for very big projects, it's really important to not think of projects as delegation. And this is a, a mistake that many people in the C-suite do is to think once you have a project, the problem has been delegated and you let the project director take care of it and you don't have to pay so much attention at the top level. That's okay for small projects. but Many organizations today are doing projects that actually could, you know, impair the life of, of the organization. So they are really dangerous to the continued existence of the organization. That kind of project you don't want to delegate. It stays in the C-suite. So you actually need the, the biggest, the most consequential projects for your organization. You need to keep an eye on them all the time from the C-suite. Otherwise, 
you are not likely to have success. And one pattern we see with projects is that often in the beginning, the CEO or others in the C-suite will actually have an eye on the project. But then, you know, over time, they lose interest and the project gets less and less attention. That can actually be a driver for project failure. When the project team feels that we are losing the attention of the top management here, that is taken as a negative. It's okay for smaller projects, mostly. But again, for big projects, you have to be really careful and self-conscious about that behavior, deliberate about it. Is that what you want or not what you want? If it's not what you want, you need to behave differently. All right. So I think our time is probably up, Ben. I want to congratulate you on the book and uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Uh, Really good questions. A real pleasure. I've been speaking to Ben Flubia, who just wrote this book, How to Get Big Things Done with Dan Gardner, a book full of wisdom and I think a very universal topic that any CEO would identify with, namely how to ensure that our projects are successful and how to beat this rather abysmal success rate that uh, Ben's research outlines. I particularly enjoyed the, the solutions. I think the solutions are very practical, modularity and so on, and very implementable. I, th- I think any company can adopt many of the practices that Ben discusses. If you like this podcast, then make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback. 